Hey everyone, Christine here with my contribution to our annual installment of History for Halloween. This is year six of our spooky little extravaganza. And as you know, I have a tradition of turning to historical newspapers. My story today comes from the Gazette of the United States, dated November 7th, 1792. But that isn't the only place it was printed. Heck, it might not even be the first place it was printed. But it is where I found it, so that's the one I'm going to cite. After that, I also found it in places like Britain's The Young Woman's Guide to Virtue, Economy, and Happiness, and The Pocket Magazine of Classic and Polite Literature, among other publications stretching well into the 19th century. Basically, I think we can say that this is something that appeared in many places on both sides of the Atlantic, and that lots of people's eyes would have at least skimmed over at some point or another. Often, it was published under the simple title of A Dublin Anecdote. And it is exactly that, an anecdote. Here's what it proposes. Once upon a time, in Dublin, or a few years ago, as the story typically says, but since the story was constantly told and retold for decades, once upon a time is probably just about as accurate as a few years ago, assuming that, you know, any of this happened at all. But anyway, once upon a time, or a few years ago, there was a woman in Dublin, Ireland, who caused quite the hubbub when she claimed that, of course, the house she was renting was haunted. The ghost that haunted her was a creepy woman dressed all in black robes who threw back the woman's bed curtains and scared her, not just by being a creepy woman ghost, but also by being surrounded with a glow that was like lightning. And to top it all off, she tried to get the woman to follow her somewhere. Now, presumably the haunted lady did not actually follow along because she lived to see another day. And on that other day, she invited some relatives to stay there with her and try and witness the same craziness. The relatives ended up just as freaked out, but by loud noises and groans. So then, the relatives and the haunted lady all evacuated the premises, and allegedly the story sort of spread around and became big news in the area, drawing looky-loos from all over. One of these looky-loos was a gentleman, who decided that he was going to stay in the super scary house. And with him, he would have nothing but a dog and a case of loaded pistols. He was in there from 9pm on one night until 6am the following day. And when the time came to release him, the door was opened. And, dun dun dun, he was found asleep. Wah wah, as they say. That is quite anticlimactic. Now, although he claimed he did not see a ghost, he did admit to hearing loud noises. But he believed that if a ghost ever existed, he must have scared it off, because he shouted loud threats that he was going to shoot anybody, living or dead, who approached him. I, for one, didn't know that you could, you know, do anything to a ghost by shooting it. But heck, there you go. I guess, you know, if there was a ghost, he scared it off with those threats, or maybe it was a dog. We will never know. 
what our big brave gentleman did do while he was in this house all by himself was compose a poem. Because, of course, that's what you do while you're waiting for ghosts to come and haunt you. That poem, as you can imagine, was published regularly alongside the little story. And the poem was aptly titled, Stanzas Written in a Haunted Room. Are you ready for it? I bet you are. Here we go. Stanzas written in a haunted room. If from the cerements of the silent dead our long-departed friends could rise anew. Why feel a horror or conceive a dread to see again those friends whom once we knew? Father of all, thou givest not to our ken to view beyond the ashes of the grave. Tis not the idle tales of busy men that ken the mind appall, the truly brave, seated on reason's adamantine throne, can place the soul and fears no ills unknown. Oh, if the flinty prison of the grave could loose its doors and let the spirit flee, why not return the wise, the just, the brave, and let once more the pride of ages free? Why not restore a Socrates again, or give thee Newton as the first of men? In this lone room where I now patient wait, to try if souls departed can appear, or could a burg escape his prison gate, or could I think Latouche's form was near? Why feared to view the shades which long must be sacred to freedom and to charity? A little onward in the path of life, and all must stretch in death their mortal frame. A few short struggles end the weary strife, and blot the frail memorial of our name. Torn from the premonitory's lofty brow, in time the rooted oak itself lies low. Well then. There's something to take with you for Halloween. Should you ever find yourself in a place waiting for spirits from the great beyond, I hope that the spirits that arrive are the ones that you want them to be. And if they aren't, then just remember, you can always write a poem. Happy Halloween! Hello and happy Halloween, listeners. It's Elizabeth here, and I'm going to talk about the beliefs that were behind a movie titled Mr. Vampire. Mr. Vampire was released by a studio in Hong Kong in 1985. Now, while I didn't see the movie until the 1990s, Mr. Vampire, with its titular hopping, stiff vampire, easily seized the imagination of my siblings and me, and to this day we talk about sticky rice as a protection against similar creatures. But the studio didn't invent the legends behind Mr. Vampire, and that's what we'll be focusing on in this portion of History for Halloween. You see, the vampire of Mr. Vampire isn't like the vampires of Transylvania and Eastern Europe, except in that they're the undead and they wish to steal what could be considered the human life force. But in this case, the life force isn't blood, it's your chi. In China, this undead creature is known as the Zhengshu. The first written report of the Jiangsha dates from the late 1700s in a work by scholar Ji Xiaolan, and in it, he describes a reanimated corpse that would hop around. Due to the incredible stiffness of rigor mortis, the Jiangsha has to hop because it can't bend its arms or legs. And this reanimated corpse would try to steal the life forces, or qi, of people by night and hide in coffins or caves by day. 
The Zheng Shu was described as wearing long silk gowns and having long hair, fitting the period appearance of Qing Dynasty China, which lasted from 1644 to 1912. The Zheng Shu's face was ghastly white, perhaps from a mold it developed after death. But, of course, reanimated corpses that appear to hop around just don't spontaneously appear. How or why did people become a Zheng Shu? Great question. There were multiple causes, including, but not limited to, the idea that due to a distressing death, the soul did not leave the person's body, or the person was not buried properly, or the person met a Zheng Shu while alive and caught the Zheng Shu virus. But where did this legend come from? While in the West, there seems to be some similarities with the undead known as vampires, which is why the movie's title was translated into English as Mr. Vampire, the Zheng Shu has a much different origin. In China, as in many places at the turn of the 18th century, the roads were not excellent. It was incredibly important, though, that if a person died far away from their home, to return them for burial in their village or town of origin. But this was not easy. According to an account in a recent work by Li Ao Yi Wu, even in the mid-20th century, returning a dead body to its hometown was still difficult due to poor roads and the hilly countryside. Now, one option was to bring the body home in, say, a wheelbarrow. But this was hard to do, especially if we're discussing a journey of hundreds of miles. So what was a family to do? They hired men to bring home their loved ones for a proper burial. And we have a variety of names for these men, who were sometimes priests, that performed this service. We sometimes call them corpse herders, corpse drivers, or corpse walkers, and it's the last term that I like to use. The corpse walkers knew that carrying a corpse through towns and villages was taboo, so they developed an elaborate system where one to two men would transport the corpse in one of two ways. In the first way, the corpse walkers walked in front of and behind the dead. The corpse was dressed as if alive, and the corpse walkers put long poles on top of their shoulders and then placed the poles under the shoulders of the corpse. Like this, the corpse walkers and their charges walked miles to the latter's final resting place, and the corpse, due to the poles, had the appearance of hopping as it went. Another way of transporting the dead was for one of the corpse walkers to go in front with a lantern and potentially a gong and sometimes fake money to warn local communities that they were coming so the people could look away. If they didn't look away, it was said that the corpse would steal your chi. The other corpse walker would then put the dead on his back and cover himself and his charge with a large robe. In this way, they also moved in a clunky, lumbering manner. And as they walked, the corpse walker in front would sing or yell directions to the other, and these directions would always begin, Yo-ho, yo-ho, which in the U.S. and other places became a phrase linked to pirates in the late 1800s. But as we can see with this story, its origin doesn't seem to stem from finding a dead pirate's chest of riches, but returning the dead to their rightful burial place. This macabre group, that of the corpse walkers and their dead, often walked at night, which ramped up the creepy factor. During the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, corpse walkers were seen as upholding old-fashioned ways of life, and the job was banned, although there are reports that the tradition is still done. So, if out late at night, and you hear a gong in the distance, and the calls of yo-ho, yo-ho, make sure you look away, so the junk shu doesn't steal your chi.
Hi, Kristen here, and this Halloween, you should know that in the later 19th century, New England was home to a vampire craze. A real one. Well, kind of. Vampiric lore can be found in many eras and cultures, but the Victorians of Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island had a fascination that went beyond scary stories and garlic hung in the window. They were dead serious. In the winter of 1892, some 200 years after the Salem Witch Trials and about 100 miles south in Exeter, Rhode Island, a group gathered around the grave of Mercy Lena Brown, a 19-year-old girl who had died a few months before. All signs pointed to tuberculosis, a bacterial infection primarily of the lungs, then called consumption, and there was a history of the disease in the family. The Browns had had a lot of tragedy going into 1892. First, Mercy's mother, Mary Eliza, and sister Mary Olive had died of the illness, then Mercy herself. Her brother Edwin was also sick. Mercy Lena's father, George Brown, shipped his son off to Colorado, hoping that a change in air would cure Edwin. But months later and no better, he returned to Rhode Island to be with his family. According to local newspapers at the time, George Brown's Exeter neighbors pressured him to exhume the bodies of his wife and two daughters, quote, to ascertain if the heart in any of the bodies still contained blood, as these friends were fully convinced that if such were the case, the dead body was living on the living tissue and blood of Edwin, end quote. So on March 17, 1892, in Shrub Hill Cemetery, they dug up Mrs. Brown, who died in 1883. There was some mummified tissue on what was, by then, mostly just her skeleton, but no blood in her heart. They dug up Mary Olive, who died seven months after her mother. She was only a skeleton, albeit one with a thick head of hair. There was no heart left at all. Then they exhumed Mercy Lena, who had died two months before. It was New England, and it was the end of winter, so she had been resting, perhaps unpeacefully, in an above-ground crypt until it was possible to dig her a proper grave. When they opened the crypt, they found Mercy Lena far more preserved than her mother and sister. In an autopsy performed on site, a local Exeter doctor named Harold Metcalf removed her heart and liver. There was no blood in the liver, but there was in the heart, a telltale sign of vampiric activity. The doctor, who had treated Mercy Lena in life, counseled that there were also tuberculosis germs in her lungs, but the spectators felt, you know, better safe than sorry. According to the reporter from the Providence Journal, who also attended this macabre intervention, local tradition had it that, quote, so long as the heart contains blood, so long will any of the immediate family who are suffering continue to grow worse, end quote. So they burned Mercy Lena's heart and liver to ashes on a rock nearby. It didn't stop there, though. It was not enough to burn the liver and the corpse's heart still full of blood. The afflicted person had to eat it. The reporter stopped short of saying they actually followed through on this last bit of the ritual, but he strongly implied that they did. And local tradition has it that Edwin drank the ashes of his sister's heart and liver in water, and then died soon after. The news coverage of the Mercy Lena Brown incident has an air of condescending, almost gleeful voyeurism. Hey, look at these rube farmers who are so stupid and superstitious, they'll dig up their relatives and eat them because vampires, you guys. But the story circulated in a society obsessed with death and the macabre and cultural superiority. 
This was an era of electricity and streetcars and baseball, but it was also a time when rural farming communities were still relatively isolated and mummy unwrapping parties were all the rage. Mercy Lena's story was sensationalized, but it was hardly the only such case of its kind. Folklorist Michael Bell has identified 80 exhumations, mostly in New England, much like Mercy's. But it was Mercy Lena's story that captured the ghoulishly delighted imagination of Victorian audiences, and it was repeated over and over in the newspapers. One such retelling by the New York World found its way into the hands of a middle-aged Irish theater manager named Abraham Stoker. Dracula was published in 1897, and some people believe that wasn't enough time for Mercy's story to have influenced his work. But for others, the young girl, claimed by a wasting disease, only to rise from the dead to harass the living, the exhumation in the crypt and the dismemberment of her corpse— still engorged with the blood of the living, the name that is a combination of both Lena and Mercy, that sounds like the character of Lucy to them. Happy Halloween! The city of Chicago has a beautiful river walk. On a warm summer evening, it can even be a delightful way to wind down the day. Imagine walking along the river, hand in hand with someone you love. It seems hardly the atmosphere for spooky spirits and tales of witchcraft. But Chicago also has a rich history, and the Chicago River contains many secrets and ghost stories. One of the more common stories is that if you walk too close to the riverbank, You may feel hands reaching, grasping from the river, and brushing against your arms or legs. Some report seeing dead bodies floating in the river that disappear if you get too close. Why are so many people subject to these spooky experiences? Locals say the spirits are strongest because of an event in 1915. On a summer day, Western Electric invited its employees and their families to take a river cruise to Indiana, where they would have a midday picnic, play some games, and cruise on back. The boat was loaded up with 2,500 passengers and crew. A recent concrete addition on the top of the boat held more people with a high view of the city's beautiful riverside. Dotted along the side sat a new complement of plentiful lifeboats. These had been added in the years after the Titanic disaster just four years earlier, keeping the SS Eastland in line with new federal law. The new guidelines affected riverboats and Great Lakes cruise ships, as well as ocean liners. The SS Eastland had been built in 1903 and was not quite strong enough to hold the number of people, the extra lifeboats, or the illegal concrete addition. And so, as people loaded on, passers-by on the shore began to wave. The cheerful atmosphere led to singing and calling out. The passengers rushed to the railings to wave back to the crowd, and the boat began to tilt. It crashed into the river and sank to the riverbed. Many were thrown overboard in hoop skirts that dragged them down to the bottom of the river quickly. Some passengers in the water swam to shore while others began to drown, unable to swim. The worst tragedy came to those who had gone under deck to warm up during the cool summer morning. As the ship began to turn on its side, furniture came crashing against them. Tables, chairs, pianos, and other debris pinned the passengers and crew to the bottom of the boat as it sank to the mud of the river. 
Still other victims were trapped on the outside, between the hull and the riverbed itself. In all, more than 846 lives were lost that day. Among them were members of 22 entire families, parents and children dying together. Over 200 of them were recent immigrants from Czechoslovakia. A nearby boat named Kenosha came swiftly to the aid and managed to save a few dozen of those who could not swim, but overwhelmingly, the number of those who were in the boat drowned. In 2015, a graduate student from UIC discovered previously unknown live video footage of the rescue attempts, which are now available online. This disaster looms large in the history of Chicago, where the Chicago River and Lake Michigan continue to be such an important part of daily life. Nestled in the center of the town's financial district called The Loop, this area is the river just blocks from the city center. And it is this story of watery disaster that has led to such widespread tales of ghost stories. People report feeling hands desperate to escape the water, tugging on long dresses and tailored slacks, pulling on arms as if to ask that they not be forgotten. People share stories of seeing dead bodies floating in the river, only to disappear again. In fact, the feeling of being dragged into the river or seeing floating bodies is so pervasive and so common that people have begun to check themselves. Should we call the police? Was that what I thought it was? Is that a person in crisis? The story is so well entrenched in city lore that a few years ago, a man experienced the whole thing. He was walking along a river and felt what seemed to be tugging against his leg. He saw nothing there, moved on, and moments later, a mysterious object bobbing in the water caught his eye. He saw a horrible sight, a dead body in the river. But knowing what he knew about this area of Chicago... He wrestled with what to do next. No one wants to call the police to report a ghost. He knelt down to get a closer look. The body appeared and disappeared in the mist. And actually, this was really a dead body. Some poor soul had fallen into the river and drowned in the same spot as the SS Eastland's many hundreds of victims, about a hundred years to the day after that terrible tragedy. The memory of these deaths from the sinking in the SS Eastland was powerful enough to prevent this man from trusting his own eyes, the river ever flowing, taking lives and memories from the Chicago city center. Perhaps the lives of so many continue to live on in the river today, their ghostly spirits present to ask for remembrance and to remind us to always practice water safety. I'm Lucy, and for this year's Halloween footnote, I'm turning to ancient China. Ghost stories are often thought to be the very earliest form of Chinese literature. A Song Dynasty encyclopedia, compiled in 978, has no fewer than 130 pages devoted to ghosts. And many of the stories compiled there come from much earlier periods. Ghosts and ghost narratives, or guai turn up in the most influential texts of Chinese literature. The legalist scholar Han Fei scoffed that ghosts were the easiest thing to draw because they had no shapes and were not seen in front of anybody. Confucius, on the other hand, advised that ghosts should be respected and avoided. The literary ghosts of ancient China can be hard to tell from humans, 
They desire food and drink. They may desire revenge. They can even desire romance. But they make no noise when crossing rivers. Ghosts are those who return alive from the world of the dead, who manage to disprove the proverb that the dead and the living go different ways. Gan Bao, a 4th century historian, compiled one of the most influential collections of ghost stories, or, as he called it, researches into the supernatural. This is one of those stories. Outside Nanyang, there was a traveler's lodge where no one would stay, because anyone who did so would suffer some calamity. But once, a native of that city, Sung Ta Sien, stopped overnight there, as it was just down the road from his home. And there he sat, without having prepared any weapons, playing his lute. At midnight, a demon suddenly appeared. He had staring eyes, grinding teeth, and a horrible face. He climbed up the stairs and began talking to Tasien, who ignored him. The demon went off to the city and found the head of a dead man, which he brought back with him. Would it not be better to sleep a little, he said, and threw the head at Tasien. Splendid, said the latter. I was just wishing for a pillow to sleep on. Again, the demon went away, but he returned a third time and said, Could we not spar together? Excellent, said Tasien, and grabbed him and killed him. In the light of day, he saw only the body of a fox. But from that time onward, there were no more supernatural things in the traveler's lodge. So, how would you deal with an ancient Chinese ghost? If you're not prepared for demon slaying, there's always Confucius' wise advice of avoidance. But yet another strategy comes from a 3rd century story about a man who saw a ghost that was over 10 feet tall, clad in white, with enormous eyes. The man laughed, impressively, and said, People have always told me that ghosts are detestable, and now I can see for myself that it's true. The ghost was so embarrassed that it blushed with shame and disappeared. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.